Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Passing Shot. Murray and Djokovic light up Instagram. Labour Cup is postponed till 2021. And we remember some of our favourite moments from Monte Carlo. And welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans, for fans, with your host, Joel and Kim. On today's episode, we're going to be taking you through some of our favourite moments from Monte Carlo on what would have been finals day at the Monte Carlo Country Club. Elsewhere, we'll be bringing you some of the big talking points coming from Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic's Instagram session, as well as an update from the tennis world this week, including the postponement of the Labour Cup. But Kim, first, let's start with Murray-Novak chat Friday evening. I had had a long week at work and it was a very pleasant and nice way to kind of start the weekend. Um, you know, it was a conversation, I think, that you know they had admitted they had not actually despite, you know, having this rivalry that kind of has gone, you know, for so long, they had never actually sat down and almost had a, a chat with each other. So it was kind of really pleasant to kind of see them have that moment and almost kind of be able to kind of share it with them. Yeah, it was nice, wasn't it? Just like them as kind of mates, I suppose, just having a chat. And uh, I mean, Joel, they were clearly listening to our fashion episode passing <laughs> shot that we did last week, because the conversation turned at one point to Stan the Man's excellent uh, shorts that he won Roland Garros with. So clearly they had, you know, tennis fashion on their mind like we had. Um, I thought it was funny because Djokovic said uh, if Stan was watching, he should burn those shorts. Um, and I think Stan actually was watching because he did like respond at one point in the comments. Yeah, so God knows what he's going to do with. I mean, those shorts are in the Roland Garros Museum, aren't they? So he can't exactly burn them, but maybe he's got a spare pair at home. I did love the fact that other tennis players joined in as well as kind of, you know, your general fans as well. And uh, it was kind of great to see sort of those responses from some of the topics that were brought up, like Stan Shorts. I think Kyrgios's sleeve, uh, Kobe Bryant tattoo was brought up as well. So it was just kind of great to see all of the kind of everyone kind of getting together and having a little bit, little bit of a sit down. Because, you know, as you said, it's like, you know, these are guys that, you know, generally speaking, when we see them together, it's a head to head, it's a competitive environment. And it's nice to have a moment like this where, yeah, it's like a level playing field and they're just kind of talking as mates. And, um, you know, I think some of the I think one of the big kind of talking points or one of the things they were discussing was their perfect tennis player um, and going through all the different sort of aspects of a tennis player and, and saying who went, who they would like. I found the most interesting thing was when they were talking about backhands mm. um, and also returns of serve. Mm-hmm. They said they'd, they would prefer each other's um, each other's backhand or, or return of serve, which I thought was quite interesting. 
Well, I don't know if that's them being humble or like respectful to each other, <laughs> or was that the rule that they just couldn't pick themselves? Uh, so therefore, obviously, you would pick the the, the other, wouldn't you? Because they, generally speaking, I would say they are the two best. Um, I don't know, returners, for example. I was a bit surprised that uh, Djokovic didn't pick uh, Rafa for maybe physical as well as mental. I, I thought maybe he was trying to like spread his uh his picks around i don't know i'm 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 not sure but uh no i thought i pretty much agreed with all of their all of their picks uh picks along the line but yeah it, i mean it's nice as well just to see them like you know because these guys yeah they, we always see them like competing against each other but at the end of the day loads of players get on so well like they're friends of each other and they must be missing that kind of camaraderie of being on the tour as well right now so it's nice to do something like this isn't it and obviously the fans can join in and and get to see it as well Exactly. And maybe maybe we'll do a future episode on talking about what how we would build and structure our perfect tennis players. But let's just kind of give uh, our listeners, if you didn't catch it, the, the run through of what they uh, they thought was their kind of perfect tennis player. So Novak Djokovic uh, serve was either was a kind of a mix between John Isner, Nick Kyrgios, return, Murray, forehand, went for the Del Potro forehand uh, with a backhand, Murray volley federer mental nadal and then physical yeah dominic team stroke david ferrer and then andy murray uh chose for his serve i mean no surprises he kind of went for a similar path kyrgios isner return novak djokovic forehand rafael nadal backhand djokovic volley federer mental nadal physical djokovic um yeah maybe we should do yeah maybe we'll do a, an episode and construct our perfect player i thought the one thing just kind of looking there one of the other things maybe interests me is that uh djokovic for his forehand chose a really flat forehand you know with del potro whereas murray obviously went for nadal's which is you know complete opposite yeah um you know the massive kind of forehand topspin uh you know high over the shoulders so i thought that was kind of interesting they chose different different approaches um for for different shots I'm really surprised, actually, they didn't pick Kyrgios for, you know, his mental attitude. I mean, I can't imagine why they wouldn't have picked him for that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe maybe they went for his serve, like his underarm serve. Maybe they were referencing that. But yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, in other news, Joel, a slightly more kind of serious thing, I suppose. Um, it's come out that there are plans to set up a player relief fund um, for lower ranked players who are obviously going to be struggling a lot financially. Um amidst current current times. So uh, Djokovic revealed on Friday that the plans for their player relief fund would generate more than $4 million. Um, but the way they're going to do it, or they're outlining how they would do it, um, is that everyone in the top 100 in singles and top 20 in doubles would contribute based on kind of their ranking. So for example, those players who are in the top five would donate, say, $30,000 each. And then kind of the lower down the rankings you go, the less you would need to donate into the prize pot. Um, not too sure. I mean, I think it's a great idea, personally. Um, obviously, there's a lot of talk saying, well, players shouldn't have to be helping out other players. Like, you know, what about the ATP Tour, WTA Tour? They should be doing this. It shouldn't be upon the players themselves to have to do this. But I think um, it's obviously a really nice initiative. And I think the top players do have some responsibility to initiate something like this. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one. I think it's a kind of it's a, a good place to start. Obviously, it's you know the intent is there to kind of help in that sort of collective spirit that we're kind of we're all in this. Um, you know the 
the top top players obviously got their own initiatives kind of going on as well um and yeah it's just it's very interesting i feel like this is going to be a you know big <laughs> it's going to be a big talking point it could open up you know a lot of kind of it is a can of worms i think you know a lot of people are going to have their own opinions and already kind of those opinions are are different it's like you know how do you grade it should it be on a sliding scale of of ranking or should it be you know something should it be something else um you know is it is it fair to do it on ranking i think is kind of one of the 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 biggest kind of conversations and you know i think kind of doing something like this kind of highlights you know the you know that awareness that you know players ranked lower down need financial support but you know is there an argument to kind of say well you know how have we got into the situation where we've needed kind of a, a global you know a global pandemic something as you know massive as um you know the coronavirus to to make you know to make something like this happen yeah i agree because you know we should this i mean hopefully long term will make everyone take a, a, a more serious look at the pay structure within tennis. I know it's been on the agenda for a couple of years, and but hopefully this will be kind of like the final push to actually make it much more equitable. I mean, the issue with like this sliding scale is that the amount that they're sort of saying should be put in per like ranking, it's way kind of, dis, it's too dis, disproportionate. So someone who is closer to 100 in the world is actually going to be putting on a much larger percentage of their income than say you know Djokovic and Federer at the top of the game so therefore maybe it should be done just how much you could actually afford to give um, or if you're going to do it on ranking perhaps what would be fairer is to do it on like a ranking that would be from the last couple of years like an equalized average ranking because a lot of players like for example Dan Evans you know he's just what got into the top 30 he's only just got there he's not going to have an awful lot of money from all these top tournaments that he would be like able to access at that ranking like it's all very new to him so and there's conversely other players he would have been in the top 100 um and then maybe a much lower at the moment because of injury but yet they would have a much more you know financial capacity to give a bit more or, or to contribute to this so um obviously no system is perfect it's obviously like a new idea they're gonna have to i guess run through these issues but you know, in spirit, the idea is very nice, but I think perhaps they just need to kind of uh, streamline it a bit and, and make kind of sense of some of those inconsistencies that are going on. Yeah, I think, as you said, I think conversely, you've got people like, you know, Jack Sock or, you know, people who've kind of gone down the rankings who, you know, have had a good, you know, have almost kind of had their had their moment and made a lot of, you know, a lot of money, you know, Jack Sock. Uh, the world tour finals you know paris masters etc um you know it doesn't feel like he would you know benefit that much from you know this sort of you know relief fund that's kind of uh you know aimed at players that will have similar rankings are kind of maybe around him um i i do think though it's kind of like you know there there's this there's this effort from the players but i think there also needs to be an effort from the tournaments as well um and it will be interesting to see you know uh you know tournaments like you know, Wimbledon, for example, whether, you know, the prize money, whether they still kind of look to distribute that to players. I, I know there's been some sort of chatter and some talk about, you know, first round prize money being kind of distributed to make sure that, you know, players, you know, almost kind of do stay afloat. Because I think if you if you don't kind of support these players further down, we might get into you know a situation where they might be more vulnerable than ever, say, of them kind of going down, you know, routes of, uh, you know, match fixing and betting, which we know that kind of tennis has, 
you know history with and you know we obviously don't want that to kind of repeat itself but this might be this feels like a moment where if we don't do something it might lead players to uh you know to paths yeah to more kind of uh desperate message desperate measures yeah and also i mean how many players are actually going to be able to start up again when when they're allowed to you know they there's a lot of invest you know investments and expenditure that go into like just traveling the tour so some players might just find that they they just cannot afford to start up again um so yeah i mean i think there are various other schemes i think the wta for example has like a loan scheme going on but in reality i think the criteria for actually being able to get financial help you know isn't kind of what they say on the tin if if that makes sense it's you know you have to meet certain criteria and it's i don't know but i think you know this is this is a step in the right direction um so that's a positive thing and we all need a bit as much positive you know news as we can get right now i suppose um one other thing joel that's been announced this week uh in relation to you know coronavirus is that the labor cup has been postponed to 2021 so not a big surprise uh it's just the like latest in a series of events to go um obviously this is an exhibition so it's certainly not as uh important as for example the slams um and it was in fact going to coincide with the the newly scheduled French Open so I guess it's just for the best now that the Labour Cup has decided to kind of delay uh for a year yes there I mean there's still a part of me Kim that I, I just don't think there's going to be any more tennis played this season but let's say for now there is uh as as you said I think it's completely it completely makes sense that you know the priority is given to Grand Slams and the and kind of tour events um and, you know, as much as, you know, we all want to see kind of Labour Cup and, you know, it's it's been great, you know, the, the additions we've had so far, um, you know, as much as I want that to continue, yeah, there, there is kind of a time and a place. And, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't feel like 2020 is a, t- is a time and Boston is not the place for, um, you know, for the Labour Cup. And, yeah, so they postponed it to September 2021. Interestingly, Federer has already committed to playing it. So we will be seeing him at the Labour Cup and he will be 40 years old, Kim. Well, I mean, he's going to have to do an awful lot as a as a as an old man, isn't he? <laughs> if he wants to, <laughs> you know, win the Olympics and win another Wimbledon, uh, you know, do things at the Labour Cup. But, you know, he's proved us wrong so far in many ways. So um, why not? It's it's just adding to his his challenge and motivation, I suppose. Um, and yeah, as you say, I think with tennis, it's because it's such a global sport, isn't it? And the tour is so worldwide. It's probably arguably the sport that is most affected by coronavirus. Um, it, you know, it's not played just within one nation. So, I mean, perhaps we'll see national tennis circuits start up again in, in countries that are able to do that. So players might be able to just play like, I don't know, a German circuit or something for, for German players or South Korean circuit. I'm just trying to think of countries that are handling this situation a lot better than uh, others. Uh, but I think, you know, for a global tour like tennis it's just this is so heavily impacted as as opposed to perhaps some other sports um but yeah anyway joel let's move on because we're going to be talking back um through sort of taking a trip down memory lane like we did with the miami masters um this weekend it would have been the monte carlo final uh today as we're recording this so we thought we'd look back on some of the most i guess 
groundbreaking or important Monte Carlo moments over the last few decades. Most epic moments, Kim. <laughs> Most epic moments. Um, yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, we did this yeah, with Miami. So any listeners who uh, want to take a trip down memory lane with the Miami Masters, um, if you kind of scroll back um, on the on the podcast, you'll be able to find that episode. But yeah, today we'll be looking at some of our favourite, most epic moments from Monte Carlo. Now, Kim, in research this week, I've tried to, I've tried to incorporate moments that haven't included Nadal, but it just feels, it just feels like every moment. Uh, every moment we're going to talk about there's some sort of connection or link uh, to Nadal because it, it it is his tournament. You know, Federer has Haller, Nadal has Monte Carlo. It, this is this is how you know this is how in my mind Monte Carlo, you know, has almost kind of shaped sh- you know shaped itself over the last sort of over the last sort of decade or so. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, as a big Rafa fan myself, um, <laughs> for me, like if Rafa can win just two tournaments in one year, then it's always for me in my mind. It's always you know Roland Garros and Monte Carlo because they are like you know just his home sort of thing where he feels most comfortable. You know, on the clay, and obviously he's won an awful lot of like Barcelonas and Romes, but these two especially are the ones that stand out. Um, so yeah, it's very hard to avoid. Um, avoid Rafa in our sort of summary of of stuff this week yeah and and of course Monte Carlo you know this is the start of the you know the European clay season this is the first big clay court tournament uh you know master series level you know with Madrid and then Rome further down the line so this is kind of a really important you know for all players kind of this is a really important uh tournament to kind of get off you know, on the, on the best foot possible, um, you know, in the kind of the European clay swing. Um, so yeah, let's kind of, let's kind of talk through some of the, you know, what we think are some of the most epic moments, um, from kind of Monte Carlo's recent history. And I guess the kind of the first moment, uh, we have to kind of talk about is, of course, Rafael Nadal. His first Monte Carlo title, um, of, of course, he's won a lot since. But um, yeah, he won his first title in 2005, exactly kind of 15 years ago. I think uh, either today or, or yesterday. Um, he was 18 years old. Uh, he faced Guillermo Coria in the final, actually. Um, you know, and this was back at a time when, you know, the uh, matches uh, were over kind of five sets. And uh, yeah, he came out in in four set six three six one love six seven five, which you don't you don't see very often, do you? Uh, Nadal getting bageled um, on a clay court. So uh, I feel like that's almost kind of me. What makes this match so fascinating is the fact that yeah, Nadal uh, you know L- Nadal did lose a set six love, but I think you know I think the biggest point for me here is that you know this was almost kind of a this moment, this final was almost kind of a, a passing of the torch between, you know, two great clay quarters. And, you know, Guillermo Coria, I think, you know, arguably for kind of a few seasons, you know, I think the, the year before he got to kind of the French Open final, you know, he was almost kind of like the, the king of clay pre-Nadal. And, you know, this match for me almost kind of was that moment where it changed from Coria's the king of clay actually Nadal's here and he's kind of ready to take over ready to take over that mantle yeah I mean if only we knew like after you know after Rafa's first title at Monte Carlo if anyone anyone at that time could think oh you know 
all these years later, he would be, you know, one, you know, 12 Roland Garros and know, 11 Monte Carlos, for example, it just would have been unthinkable at the time, probably. Um, yeah, also what's interesting is, I know we discussed this on our Miami episode a couple of weeks back, but, you know, Rafa had come, just recently come out of the Miami final against Federer and Rafa had been like two sets to love up against Federer. He'd been four and up in the third set in that match before Federer came back to win in five. So I think this sort of bagel in the third set, this wobble that Rafa had against Coria in the Monte Carlo yeah. final, I guess there must have been something in Rafa's mind thinking, oh, am I going to like choke again from two sets up in a Masters final? Is it is it going to happen again? And I think he said afterwards that the match with Federer really helped him in, you know, in this final because he was just made sure not to lose his focus and, and let the lead slip. So um, I think... Like that was obviously it. Just showed his he he was growing from every single match and every kind of new experience he was having at all these you know going deep in these Masters events um, at just eighteen years of age. And obviously that year, Roland Garros turns up and and wins it. So this is a, a good portent of what was to come. You know, about six weeks later or so. I think what's so fascinating about these, uh, you know, Nadal kind of coming onto the scene and, and winning these tournaments is the fact that you know it wasn't like he had like. You know, a few seasons and you know was making like kind of like the second round third round kind of getting to grips with the tournaments and then you know and then kind of making the leap he was kind of doing this straight off the bat as like an 18 year old uh you know just going into the tournament and and winning it and it's just something you just don't you just don't hear about really particularly on that scale you know a, a kind of at a master's level um and you know, against players like you know Guillermo Correa, as I said, he was he was the king of clay. And kind of I was watching kind of some of the the clips of it on on YouTube, and you know, it's a classic sort of baseline baseline to baseline, uh, you know, matchup. And you can kind of see how you know, yeah, that kind of both of them had that those qualities that you know you could see why they were kind of called the king, you know the king of clay. But it, it just kind of felt like Nadal Nadal was going to be the better king. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just he he is un, untouchable, I like to think, on clay. <laughs> I mean, at least, you know, obviously he hasn't won every single match he's ever played on clay. People have beaten him on clay, of course, uh, some of which we'll talk about uh, shortly. But um, yeah, I mean, Monte Carlo, Rafa, the two together, perfect combination in, in my in my eyes. <laughs> but Joel, um, interesting, you know, Federer at this time was, was uh, you know, obviously world number one, very, very dominant very few rivals on the tour and um, our next moment is is actually what happened to Federer at this tournament in 2005 because he had he hadn't progressed uh, very far in this tournament because he lost to a a young up-and-coming Frenchman Richard Gasquet. He lost to Richard Gasquet which was I remember I remember watching this match uh, from my uh, from my living room on the TV and it was just such a it was such a breath of fresh air, you know this this guy, Richard, Richard Gasquet, who, you know, uh, you know, has done you know he's done some things in his career, but when he kind of came onto the scene, seeing that single handed backhand for the first time, it was just such a it's just a, such a sight to behold. To kind of, I thought it was just so memorable the way that match finished. He won kind of in the third set tie break. Um, 10 10 8 and he he won with a backhand down the line and if that's not a quintessential way for Richard Gasquet to kind of finish the match I I don't know what is 
Yeah, and that match was it was quite an epic, wasn't it? I mean, it could have could have gone either way, and we saw all sorts coming, you know, from both players. And I mean, Gasquet, yeah, it was always, you know, he was in the same generation as Rafa. You know, they were both eighteen, so actually, this tournament was pretty, I guess, important because they both kind of came onto the scene, and we got to see sort of maybe what the future of, of tennis was going to be like. And suddenly, Federer had rivals, and it's interesting because obviously Rafa's career went one way, and Gasquet's has kind of didn't quite get there. Um, I mean, he did have a lot of pressure on him, you know, from the French press, especially they lauded him to be, you know, the next thing. And I don't think he ever quite managed to deal with that. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think after this tournament, I think, you know, this, the press, the tennis media were speculating, hey, Nadal and Gasquet, are we, are we, are we watching kind of the, you know, the future number one and number two, uh, you know, players on the tour, and it, it was kind of like, uh, yes for one, yes for one person, not so much for the other. But you know, that's not to kind of take away from this moment and the fact that you know, Federer this season, I think he went something like it was something like eighty-one and four or something. Mm. His, his record through the whole dominant. season was eighty-one yeah. and four. <laughs> you know, losses were very few and far between, and I think that's was kind of what made this moment so epic was the fact that. Here he, here he is, world number one, you know, on you know, king of the world, on top of his perch, and got Richard Gasquet, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, young up and coming Frenchman coming onto the scene. Not, no one really knows a lot about him. I think he, I think he had played the previous year. I think he lost to to Safin early on, but well, he'd um, you know, he, he comes, had to come through. I think at fifteen, he so three years earlier, he'd broke, he'd qualified for the tournament. So I think that was really the first time the world sort uh, okay. of heard of him so he had kind of a bit of form like he managed to qualify I think without dropping a set three years earlier but this was obviously his big moment yeah at aged 18 and it was it didn't really get any arguably it didn't really get any better for him I mean we talk about you know uh, a sign of a really I guess a really great win is is you know in a tournament is you know have you beaten Federer and Nadal at the same event and Gasquet had that opportunity in Monte Carlo because he beat Federer and then he came up against Nadal in the semi-finals and he actually was a set and a break up but um, wasn't able to I didn't realize yeah wasn't (laughs) wasn't able to kind of pull out the bag I don't know if the you know the Federer match almost kind of took its took his um took its toll on him he must have been quite tired you know going on to court with uh you know with Rafa but um you know, I think almost for me, yeah, you're kind of looking back on kind of Gasquet's career now. Um, it feels like this was, you know, this was probably the best match he, he played. And, you know, his his career, you know, it sort of meandered more than kind of kicked on, I would say. I would say um, also he had quite a lot of trouble closing matches out, didn't he? He'd always be one of those players he wouldn't quite trust to cross the finish line. And I guess at, at this point in his career, he was a bit more fearless and went for it and, you know, ate all in the third set tie break. He was able to to get over that finish line, but we haven't really seen him do that an awful lot since then, uh, at, you know, at the crunch uh, of of the match at the at the end at the end. But um, yeah, and actually Federer did say after the match, uh, he said that he didn't know if, Gasquet would be able to produce kind of the lights out tennis that he he did do on that day. So, um, which I guess, you know, is, is true. Gasquet hasn't managed to maintain that sort of form. But uh, on that day, he got in the zone and he did it and Federer lost, which was obviously a big shock at the time. <laughs> and I guess, you know, the most probably the most telling statistic of, you know, kind of Gasquet's career and, you know, how it almost kind of plateaued before he could kind of, 
you know, make a dent on, you know, the very upper echelons of the rankings was Gasquet's kind of head to head against Nadal and Federer. Uh, as of 2020, he's 0-16 against Nadal <laughs> and 2-18 two, two against Federer. So oh. you know, I think I think that kind of speaks about, you know, yes, that this moment was so epic because, you know, what he went on to achieve, it was kind of like he got so far, but he, he, it just was not on that sort of level. Maybe we, you know, people were expecting him to get to based off, you know, based off of this tournament. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm intrigued to know the other match that he beat Federer because I can't think of that off the top of my head. But listeners, perhaps I, you can help us out with this. I one. think it was. A, I think it was a <laughs> hard court tournament. I think it was, was it on Haller or something like that. Maybe. Um, no, nah. I, I want to say it was either Indian Wells or Cincinnati. Okay. Or, I thought it was not a hard court. I could be completely wrong. <laughs> listeners, let us know if you know off the top of your head. Well, what was the other time Gasquet beat Federer? Um, but yeah, those were that was kind of a, another m- moment for me that was like really epic, just in terms of kind of a match um, at Monte Carlo. Uh, but Kim, obviously, you know you're a Rafa fan. Uh, you know, you've probably got many moments uh, from Monte Carlo, and uh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna kind of argue to me what, what, what moment for you in in uh, in Nadal uh, was was great for you? Well, every year that he won it, Joe. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I've got, I've got a, a couple, um, but I, I mean, I suppose we have to start really with the first time I think that Rafa played Federer at Monte Carlo. So this was 2006. Um, and they they played three Monte Carlo finals uh, in a row, actually. And obviously Rafa won all of them. Um, so this was kind of the first part of the first final in, you know, 2006. And um, it was only their second meeting on clay, actually. And it was this one was a pretty, pretty close final, actually, in terms of out of the three they had at Monte Carlo. Um, so it was four sets. So this time they were still playing five set Masters finals. I don't know exactly when they when it changed but um but yeah it was six two six seven six three seven six so four set tie break so it's almost four hour long match which actually does seem a bit crazy for a master's final now but um but yeah it was it was the the first well it was the second meeting on clay I think it kind of solidified for me Rafa's dominance over Federer on the clay because he'd beaten him at Roland Garros in the semi-finals the year before but I think you know yes you can beat someone once but to do it again is obviously just you know, and again and again and again, and then the more it went on, the less chance Federer had of of beating Rafa on clay, basically. Um, and so, and for me as well, you know, not this isn't just Rafa winning and being you know so good on the clay, which is obviously great, but um, for me, you know, Federer never has won the Monte Carlo title, and this match was probably the closest he came, you know, getting to the final and uh, getting to four sets of Rafa and. Yeah, Federer's never won Monte Carlo. He's he's lost all of his finals that he's been in at the tournament. Obviously, three to Rafa and, and one to Stan uh, a bit later on. But Federer's yes, yeah, a bit of a bogey tournament for Federer. I guess it hasn't helped that he's he came up against Rafa in all these finals. But um, but I think you know this this really just showed that you know I'm sorry, Federer. Although you may still be world number one, and you know you don't lose an awful lot on the tennis court, but on clay you are certainly not the world number one. And I guess this match just helped to cement that um, going forwards. I think this was at a time when it felt like literally every final of significance was Federer versus Nadal. Um, and I thought I kind of did my research for this moment. I kind of uh, was looking at kind of the other kind of clay court finals they had. And, you know, a few, I think kind of, a you know, 
few weeks later in the in the Rome final, they had an absolute barnstormer, which was again Nadal coming out on top in a five hour, oh. five minute epic um, <laughs> over five sets. Seven five in the in the final set tiebreaks in Nadal and uh, <laughs> again I was kind of looking at kind of uh, I was looking at the comments on YouTube and apparently Kim this was the match that uh, turned Masters finals from best of uh, best of five to okay. best of three sets. Um, but, yes, um, because the year after in the Monte Carlo final it was like it was straight set it was just two sets straight sets for Rafa then so that that makes total sense. I mean it is a bit ridiculous like I don't know the week before Roland Garros to play a five-hour final in the Masters event. I, th- I think they made the right call on that one. <laughs> but yeah, it's. I think the, these sorts of finals, though, the fact that, you know, Federer and Nadal went four hours in Monte Carlo and then they went five hours in Rome. Yeah, it was kind of like, it just showed you how attritional, I guess, clay court tennis is. And when you have, you know, really fierce competitors like Nadal, like Roger Federer on a court, at, you know, in the peak of their, you know, in the peak of their powers, you know, back in 2006, it was never going to be a match that was straightforward. And it felt like it had kind of momentum swings, you know, it went, you know, one, one, one set, then the other one, the other set. And it really felt like it could have gone either way. And kind of, you know, even kind of that fourth set tie break, it felt like, it still felt like it was on a knife, you know, it was on a knife edge until, mm. you know, the very, the very last moments. And it, it, again, it could have very easily have gone, have gone five. Yeah, and I think, you know, to beat Federer, you know, it's more special, isn't it, to to kind of beat the, the number one and have these like epic matters, uh, matches and to come through them. So um, obviously meant a lot to Rafa and, and their rivalry obviously shaped arguably both of their careers and inspired them to both become better players. Because I think over that kind of period of time, like 2006, 2007, 2008, you know, they they played an yeah an astronomical number of times, and it was almost like every week we were getting treated to this Fedal battle. And at the time, you know, I mean, I guess with each passing match, it became more and more significant what we were what we were getting. Um, but now, yeah, when you look back on it, you think, oh, that really was like the golden age, I guess, of of the rivalry because it was just they were playing so frequently. Um, and I guess you know, obviously, Federer's career especially on clay would have been so much so, was so very different if, if Rafa hadn't have been there because you know in recent years he's been skipping the clay court season hasn't he and obviously he won Roland Garros in 2009 but apart from that Rafa really has been his his bogeyman on the clay and you know this I guess Monte Carlo just kind of demonstrates that as well you know Federer's never won this tournament and most he probably would have done obviously if he hadn't have come up against Rafa in three of those finals so uh yeah, it's uh, and I'm sure that Rome final that that ding dong they had, we'll be getting onto that when we come to review Rome <laughs> in a couple of weeks' time. Yes. So we we'll look forward <laughs> to doing that one as well. <laughs> but let's let's move on to our, our next moment because again, this is one of your one of your moments, and it's it's got I guess epicness to it because because you were actually there for it. Yes, so this moment probably just seems like a bit of a run of the mill match, but um, for me, this is like a personal moment because it was the first time I went to Monte Carlo, and. Um, yeah, it was 2012 and Rafa won the tournament, um, played Novak in the final. But at this time, um, this was kind of the era where Novak was just beating, you know, everyone. He'd had that amazing season in 2011. And it seemed like every time he played Rafa, Rafa basically just couldn't get a look in because I think he'd lost, yes, he'd lost his last seven matches against Djokovic, including the last three slam finals. So, you know, as a fan myself there, like, 
looking forward to the final, you know, Rafa against Djokovic, I thought, oh gosh, you know, it's going to be Djokovic again, isn't it? And I thought, oh, if, if Rafa can just get one win against him, you know, on clay, like this would be great. Like, and I just, I just thought, oh, he needs to like stop the rot, you know, he needs to kind of end this, this losing streak with Novak. And I was kind of all prepared for some, you know, really intense, like stressful match, but it was far from it. It was very serene. It was six, three, six, one straight sets. And um, me and my friends were just sitting there like, oh, we can just go out and celebrate now. Like, you know, it wasn't, it was just a very enjoyable, pleasant afternoon. And um, it, for me, that was the first time I'd actually seen Rafa win a title live as well. Like the first kind of final I'd been to um, with him in. So it was just a really nice personal moment for me. Um, and I'd always wanted to go to Monte Carlo. And if anyone's thinking about going when everything's back up and running and you haven't been, then do go because it's the most beautiful tournament I think you could go to it's it's definitely right up there and I, I would happily go to it every year if I could but um I think in the match itself you know it was very run-of-the-mill um but I know Djokovic was struggling I think with some personal issues that were going on at that time so of course it certainly wasn't like I don't think a genuine matchup because Novak was very off um but I think for me it just aside from being a personal moment I just think Rafa really needed this as a confidence boost kind of going into the clay season that year because I think he had just been left quite demoralized by Novak's domination of him over the last year yeah if it felt like if 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 he was going to break that losing streak it was going to happen in Monte Carlo because you know this was you know this was title number eight wasn't it for Rafa and you know he had he had now built up this kind of aura that when he played in Monte Carlo, he was, you know, near on, you know, invincible. And so even when someone as good and as great as Novak Djokovic steps on onto court to kind of face up against him, you know, he, he would still kind of on, on the courts of Monte Carlo, he would expect to kind of come away, uh, you know, and, and win. So I think that for me is kind of why this is epic is kind of like it, it, it stopped the rot. And yeah, if it almost kind of felt like he needed to, it, it had to happen it had to have happened at Monte Carlo. Yeah, completely agree. And um, as I said before, you know, for Rafa fans, I'm sure any Rafa fans listening, you know, Monte Carlo is, is you know, you feel like, yeah, this is Rafa's tournament. Like it's extra special for him to kind of retain that dominance there and to get another title there. And yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, obviously, um, yeah, I mean, well, it was just, I, I get, you know, I, this was the, I think I mentioned a couple of episodes back that I had some clay from the court on Monte Carlo. And this <laughs> is from that match. It was after. Is this where you got it from? This is when I, yeah, I was able to go onto the court afterwards and I sort of cheekily oh, wow, scooped lovely. a bit of clay up. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, many, many fond memories from, from Monte Carlo. Well, Kim, it hasn't all been serene for Nadal at Monte Carlo. And I think the moment that serene that sereneness was broken was uh in 2013 when Novak Djokovic he was kind of world number one at the time ended his eight year winning run at the Monte Carlo Masters beat him in straight sets 6-2-7-6 you know, for me, as I said, it kind of, as I said, because of this sort of aura that Nadal had had built up, it it, it felt like, you know, it, you know, Nadal the King of Clay. It felt like almost Novak had stolen his crown because, you know, the the sort of invincibility that uh, Nadal had kind of got, you know, from Monte Carlo. I think he was forty six consecutive matches won in the tournament. Um, 
you know, and Novak comes along, kind of stops the, you know, stops that streak and, you know, takes the crown from him. It was a, you know, it was a big deal. It was a big moment, you know, Nadal losing at Monte Carlo, you know, it's, it's the start of the clay season. People, you know, people are always going to wonder, oh, is he at the peak of his powers? I'm not sure. Can Novak, you know, can, could Novak Djokovic kind of do it? Yeah, I agree. And I, I was actually at this final as well. So, um, <laughs> I was a bit like, okay, had one. You know, you win some, you lose some. You know, I saw Rafa win the year before. Fair enough. Novak can have this one. Um, but yeah, no, it was a bit like, oh, Rafa's finally lost at Monte Carlo. Um, but it, it had to happen at some point. And I think sometimes the thought of it is worse than it actually is when it happens. And yeah, Novak totally deserved to win this match. He, he was the better player. And um, he was, you know, just so much more improved on you know the final from 12 months before and um i think at the time he was also carrying a bit of an injury so to have done that and you know not be perhaps physically 100% as well was uh very impressive for Novak and obviously he has got on to win Roland Garros and reach several other Roland Garros finals and you know he is an exceptional clay court player so it was probably well deserved that he won Monte Carlo at some point um especially uh, you know he does live in Monte Carlo as well so he um you know it feels like I guess it's it's a home from home for him so it's a nice moment for him to win win in that setting yes uh yeah I think he was carried I think he injured his ankle or something in in a Davis Cup uh tie for Serbia before the tournament so it was a bit up in the air I think actually whether he was going to play it which makes it even more incredible that he won the tournament I think he lost like I think his first three matches in the tournament kind of all went to three sets and you know I think going into the final you would have obviously backed Nadal and the fact that you know, he came away when in kind of in straight sets um you know I think you can have almost kind of <laughs> there's no sort of there's no if issues I feel like you you would have wanted a more you, you would have wanted to see a more kind of uh you know a closer final but the fact that you know the achievement. Um, I think is what makes this moment epic. The fact that yeah, he broke the the forty the forty six match uh, winning streak at Monte Carlo. Yeah, and obviously, I think for me, you know, I was thinking, oh, if Rafa's you know lost Monte Carlo, what does this mean for the French Open? You know, you think, oh, is he is he not going to win anything on clay that this season? But you know, he went on to win the French. I think that was year that was the year he played Ferrer in the French Open final. Um, so I don't know what happened to Djokovic in that. I think oh, Rafa beat him in the semi and that, oh, that was it. I remember. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's one of those matches that you remember where you were. I think I was hiding in a <laughs> cupboard at work, checking the live scores on my phone <laughs> during that semi-final. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. But obviously, you know, Rafa came through and won Roland Garros that year anyway. So um, it, it wasn't, you know, a disaster. It wasn't a sort of, you know, disastrous moment. But um, yeah, yeah, the, uh, well, the next moment we're going to discuss is uh, Rafa's 10th victory uh, at Monte Carlo, which, you know, was very, very important for the history books because he became the first player in the open era to win the same ATP event 10 times. Um, and obviously he then went on to complete La Decima, you know, 10 titles at Barcelona and also at uh, the French Open. So, um this final was very straightforward. He played uh, 
Albert Ramos, which I mean, yeah, Ramos Vinola. <laughs> he played Ramos Vinola. Yeah, the final. Uh, yeah, in the in the final, which uh, you know, I think it it was it was hoped it was going to be a Rafa Vavrinka final, but I think Stan lost uh, in in the semis. Uh, Rafa also came through against David Goffin, uh, which was a match um, that is remembered, I guess, for all the wrong reasons, because there was a kind of a key moment um, where I think Goffin was a break up in the first set. And then like the umpire, um, Cedric Murier, like uh, basically kind of, um, he basically took it upon himself to almost kind of be a vil- the villain of the piece and get a point replayed when Nadal was having no qualms about it. And essentially Goffin went from kind of, I think four, two up to kind of three all, um, and then it was just kind of it just kind of snowballed from there. And, um, you know, it was kind of like, I guess, kind of these are players that, you know, we've been talking about Nadal and Federer and Djokovic, who've come to kind of rule, um, you know, Nadal and Djokovic really come to kind of rule uh, Monte Carlo. But obviously other players have you know kind of made a mark. But La Decima, I mean, 10 titles, that is that is a phenomenal achievement. That is something that we, you know, it's it's, it's very... It's very rare to see, and to see it happen three times uh, in kind of one, you know, clay court swing is in, is incredible. Um, and again, it's it's one of those where I think what makes it epic is the the history of the mo- of the achievement, not necessarily the match itself, because the final was a bit of a blowout. I mean, six one, six three, seventy six minutes. There was absolutely no way Nadal was going to be losing, you know. To Ramos Vinolas in um, in the semi-finals, and um, sorry in the in the final, and uh, yeah, it, it it was again. It was this. It almost kind of like this point. Nadal had got his almost got his aura back because you know he went he went into that French Open in such great form, and I think he only lost he lost thirty five games in in that whole tournament. It just shows you that you know this clay season, this was Rafa back to his kind of invincible best he was extremely dominant wasn't he um that year because this was 2018 if i'm if i'm right and Mm. yeah it was just completely completely going for it and um, i think rafa's only lost that clay season was to team in rome but then uh rafa beat team in the final of the french open that year so um yeah, poor Albert Ramos. You know, he only had one thing <laughs> coming that Sunday afternoon in Monte Carlo. I mean, I don't think he would have been allowed to to beat Rafa on that day. He would Could have you taken something Could catastrophic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that yes. would have been that would have just been rude. You know, ruining Rafa's decima. Um, but yes, no, this was um, this was a, another lovely, lovely moment for Rafa on the you know historic clay courts of of Monte Carlo, and uh, yeah. Again, just, I mean, he's just notching these titles up like nobody's business. Um, but yeah, a very important numerical, I suppose, achievement on this one. And, um, that, and that was, that was in, in, so sorry, Kim, that was in 2017. Oh, um, was it? And on the, okay. Yeah. And because on the, on route, um, en route to that, uh, to that title, uh, a moment and our next moment, actually, uh, one for British fans is a, another, again, a match I can recall was, uh, Rafa versus Kyle Edmund in in round two, um, in round two of yeah 2017 Monte Carlo. Again, this was a moment I think it was epic because 
I don't think we really we kind of realized it at the time because you know Rafa kind of came through in in kind of three sets but like kind of looking back on it and you know this the clay season that Rafa would eventually have you know looking back on that match Edmund really pushed Rafa kind of to the limit um and there were you know it, it went kind of deep in that third set kind of you know you were one you were kind of left wondering hang on is, is Rafa going to crash out in uh you know Monte Carlo before before the final yeah, um, I was actually at this match as well, Joel. Um, so I've been to Monte Carlo quite a number of times. Um, and yeah, I genuinely thought Rafa was going to lose at one point. And that was, you know, a bit like, ah, you know, I mean, obviously I, I wanted Carl Edmund to do well, you know, a fan obviously of Carl Edmund. And it was quite nice to actually see Rafa play a British player because you don't get that very often. I think in the round before, Kyle had actually taken out Dan Evans. So I think when I'd looked at the draw, before I sort of, you know, flew out to Monte Carlo or or whatever, um, I was like, oh, he's going to face a Brit either way, um, whoever it's going to be. And yeah, interestingly, though, in this match, Rafa bageled Edmund in the first set. So you thought, oh, okay, this is going to be a walk in the park. And then Edmund just, you know, totally just thought, well, I'm just going to go for this now. And, you know, his forehand came out and, you know, just everyone was kind of like, oh, who's this guy? And, you know, obviously he got the crowd support because they wanted a match. And um, yeah, he took the second set 7-5 and then it went into the third and you thought, oh, gosh, like this could genuinely go either way. You know, at one point I was thinking. Um, But obviously the longer the set went on, you know, Rafa started to really, you know, just kind of take it up a notch and I think broke Edmund at like the crucial seventh game and from there you know the rest was kind of quite straightforward so um, but yeah for me this is the match that I think really gave Kyle actually a lot of confidence um, to compete you know at the top level because obviously less than a year after this match he was at the semi-finals of the Australian Open so I think this was kind of the start of that build-up process where he was just you know getting his form going and and showing us actually that he's a Blooming good competitor on clay, um, which is not something we often say about you know British players on, on clay. But Kyle, you know, just shows us he, he he's extremely like you know he is a, he is a threat on clay. Yeah, he he's a very efficient player. You know, regardless of kind of what surfaces surface surface um, he plays on. Uh, and yeah, it was it was great to kind of see. I think like for me, this was the match that almost like, he announced his forehand. Uh, to, to the world to the tour. <laughs> yeah. yeah and you know I think it, it, you know with someone like Rafa on court it was yeah as you said it was kind of like his his proving ground and you know I think the crowd were almost kind of in, sh- in a state of shock about kind of what you know what was going on on the court and as I said it kind of the fact that the the progress you know that first set was a bagel you know I'm sure the crowd were thinking oh this is going to be a walk in the park and you know it's going to be either classic kind of six love six three sort of victory but no it kind of went to three sets and I think it just kind of came out of it kind of came out of nowhere and it was kind of a real kind of when I saw this result and I saw the loss as a British fan I was kind of like I was disappointed but then at the same time I was like well he's just taken a you know set off Rafa at Monte Carlo that is a you know very good kind of uh that is a very good result in itself um you know for someone for someone like Kyle Edmund um I just wanted to add actually Kim I don't know if you remembered when you were at this match uh again I was kind of looking at some clips on YouTube a bird interrupted the third set at like the really pivotal moment um it just kind of like Oh, I don't remember it stayed that. On the, <laughs> it, it stayed on the net, and then the ball boy tried to like shoo it off, 
and then it, it like um landed on the on like on the baseline uh but um it was kind of a bit of a light-hearted relief in yeah what was quite a kind of a uh quite a tense, tense moment yeah it was quite a tense match i mean from what i remember um i think that day as well i'm sure novak had a bit of a tussle with i don't know pablo carreno Busto or some or someone there was a quite a number of good matches that day from what i remember but i don't remember the bird um i, I do love it when a bird interrupts a tennis match like marie Busco and her pigeons <laughs> I'll I'll put the uh, I'll put the moment on on Twitter if anyone any of our uh, listeners want to have a look at the uh, at the bird in question trying to upset <laughs> the uh, upset the match. But um, yeah, that was certainly another epic moment. And our, our final epic moment actually is one that doesn't really involve Rafa, doesn't involve Federer. Well, actually, sorry, it does involve Rafa, but not not in the way Kim you would want. It's um it's Fabio Fognini winning the title in 2019 when he took out Rafa. Uh, en route in the semi-finals I think he beat him in straight sets actually and he played Dusan Lajovic in the final and won 6-3 6-4 you know I think this was epic because I think Fognini had gone into the tournament in terrible form I think he had won only like one of eight matches um, the fact that kind of this tournament had been obviously dominated by you know Spanish players over the years and I think no Italian had won since kind of like the you know the late 1960s early 1970s i think um so it was just kind of great to see kind of like someone else you know win the title and someone you wouldn't really expect and you know for me i think what's kind of most fascinating about kind of almost kind of this um almost kind of like the the 2019 tournament itself was that it was just a very bizarre tournament because you had you know the finals between dusan laovic and Fabio Fognini, and you, these are two players, you know, going into that tournament, you would not have expected uh, to get to the final. And to make it even more bizarre, L- Lavic didn't even drop a set, um, didn't drop a set getting there. Uh, you know, Fognini kind of took out, you know, Nadal in, in the semifinals. And I think, you know, Nadal afterwards, um, he said that was one of, if not his worst match worst clay court matches uh you know in 14 years being on the tour so it just kind of showed you that you know they they he can be beaten but he has to play pretty badly in order to be yeah it wasn't a good day for rafa um but you know he's he was very sort of respectful in defeat said you know i deserve to lose um which is fair enough um i can't believe that was last year to me that feels like about three years ago i don't know if that's just me <laughs> but i I was shocked that that was actually a whole year ago. Um, that's mad. But yeah, and also, I mean, I suppose it was a nice moment for Fognini because I guess that's the biggest title that he's ever won in his career, you know, a Masters Series event. So, and also, you know, Monte Carlo, it's it's right on the border with Italy. So there's a lot of Italian fans there. So it would almost have felt like playing at home, I think, uh, partly. And uh yeah, I mean, he deserved it. It was a bit of a random final. I don't think it will be, um, I don't think it was one that anyone could predict uh, that was going to happen that year. But uh, I mean, Fognini <laughs> is one of those, Fognini is one of those players, though, that he, he does have it in his locker because I think when he beat Rafi, he became only the fourth man to, to have three or more victories against Rafa on a clay court. Yes, he has beaten um, him, I think, at Barcelona before. Um, I think Fognini. And I, Fognini also beat Rafa at the US Open uh, one year. So it is almost a bit of a bogeyman for Rafa. 
uh, in certain situations. Um, and I noticed actually looking at Dusan Lajevic's, uh progress through to that final, he beat your favourite Joel in the first round, <laughs> Malik Jaziri. Well, I didn't want that to come up, Justing. but yes, you are right. He beat Yaziri. I mean, Yaziri probably beat- was just glad... Also, he yeah. beat Dominic team uh, en route to that final. So I don't know what team was playing at in Monte Carlo either, because obviously both him and Rafa got to the Roland Garros final a couple of weeks later. So obviously didn't put the rest of their clay court season in disarray too much. Yeah, it was just, as I said, it's a very bizarre final. But, um, you know, I think one that kind of we look back on, it's kind of like, you know, for Fignini, you know, it showed us that this is a guy, you know, on his day, we don't know when that day is going to be, but on that day, he does have the kind of the tools in his locker to beat someone like Rafael Nadal on a clay court. And, um, you know, I'm sure he, he may have preferred to have done that, you know, as something, you know, like the Italian Open in, in Rome. But, um, you know, to get one over on Nadal in, you know, in Monte Carlo, that must have been, you know, that must have been such a good, such a good feeling. And the fact that he was then able to kind of go on and, and win the tournament, um, you know, was is probably a very kind of special memory for him. And, and dare I say, that might be the biggest tournament, yeah, he wins in, in his career. For sure. I think it probably will be. I mean, who knows if they'll, I mean, I just hope there's a Monte Carlo 2021 that we can get our teeth into because uh, all we have at the moment are memories. So um, that kind of brings us to a close for our trip down memory lane so Joel do do you have perhaps a favorite moment out of all the ones that we've touched upon today yes I am gonna go for it It was lovely to hear your cases for all the the Rafa moments at Monte Carlo (laughs) you're gonna pick like Djokovic winning aren't you (laughs) (laughs) yes just be different no I'm so you know I get the like kind of the for me kind of the decima is like that is a massive moment in terms of the history books but i'm actually going to go for the gasquet federer match in 2005 um as my kind of ultimate moment because of the almost because i think of the significance of that match and the kind of the different paths that kind of uh you know gasquet and you know nadal took um you know after that tournament you know these were two players kind of coming up you know through the you know coming up as youngsters and it just kind of shows you in tennis it's kind of it is a fickle world and you know it can go it can go one way for the other but it doesn't always work out like that and i think it's you know i think kind of that sort of tournament kind of showed us you know the startings of that for you know gasquet and nadal was you know we've got gasquet arguably yeah reaching kind of the the peak of his career so early on yeah, the glory days of 2005. Um, yeah, no, for me, I am going to go for the 2012 final, um, which is the one that I was lucky enough to be at. And, you know, okay, it was quite a straightforward final, but I just think for me that it was an essential win for Rafa to kind of stop that run of matches going against him, um, you know, with, with Djokovic. And I think that was... I don't know, in hindsight, I just feel like it had a sort of critical moment to it because obviously I just would have worried if, if Novak had beaten Rafa on that day, especially when Novak wasn't really at his best, you know, far from his best. If Rafa had lost that match, then, you know, that would have been uh, not boding well for the rest of the clay court season that year. And obviously that was title number eight, so very significant again. And yeah, I mean, I, I, there's so many Rafa moments to choose from over the years. It's hard, but I think that was the one I, I was at that match. So I think personally, that was, 
you know, one of my favourite tennis moments. We could have had a list. We could have had a list just made up of, of Rafa moments yeah. at Monte Carlo. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, listeners, let us know. What do you think? What was your kind of favourite uh, ultimate moment from Monte Carlo over the years? Have we have we missed one out? Let us know. Uh, you can contact us on social media, of course, at Passing Shot Pod on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can let us know by email as well, PassingShotPod at gmail.com. And remember, if you are listening to us, remember uh, to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, click that subscribe button. And if you are listening to us on Apple, make sure you leave us a rating if you've enjoyed listening to our show. But for now, uh, I think that's it for this week's episode of The Passing Shot. Um, I'm sure we'll be back uh, next Sunday with another, another episode for you. So look forward to that one. But in the meantime... Thanks for listening and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.